Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series where we explore the science fiction field from all angles, covering the past, the present, and the future. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And welcome to our second episode, and thanks to everyone who gave us a positive response to our first show. Last time we talked about definitions of science fiction, but reflecting back on it later, I realised we didn't talk about the term science fiction itself, about that being the name for this genre, this field. Should we be saying science fiction, or should we call it something else? Where do you stand on that, Colin? Are you a sci-fi person, science fiction? Where do you stand? I have to confess, I am a sci-fi person. <gasps> I know, it's it's controversial at best. <laughs> I sort of got into this field when science fiction was the respectable term for it. Um, all authors, all critics, everybody within the field called it science fiction, but everybody outside of it called it sci-fi. So to me, sci-fi has always been this kind of derogatory term. It's just used within the field to point to bad science fiction, and then you call that sci-fi, whereas what you do is is the serious stuff. <laughs> proper science fiction and i i can't i can't break from that unfortunately but so what's what's the delineation between science fiction and sci-fi well in 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 those days and i'm talking really i suppose about the 1980s um possibly earlier as well but in in those days i think what it was that the field had always struggled for respectability it was always looked down upon by the literary people mm-hmm. um and yet there was a certain pride within the field. And so when people outside the field started calling it something else, i.e. sci-fi, there was hostility to it. But um, people would then take that term and use it as a put-down for bad science fiction. So it was mostly used for bad movies, I think, uh, back in those days. Um, and, and bad children's television and that kind of thing. Today, I don't think it it matters. I think um, the same stuff is labelled by some people as science fiction and some people as sci-fi. I don't think it's used in that derogatory way anymore, but it's very difficult to, to break from that habit for someone like me. So I, I tolerate other people using it if they want to call it sci-fi, but I'd never use it myself. Do you know where it came from? Sci-fi, the word. Uh, sci-fi? Yeah. Actually, I don't know exactly. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? It's one of those things that's been around for so long. Um, and it, it, it's obviously, um, it's an, oh, what's the word? It's an analogy to uh, hi-fi, which predated oh. sci-fi by a few decades. And of course, now we have Wi-Fi as well, which is also <laughs> an analogy to hi-fi. But uh, no, it was Forrest J. Ackerman, the writer critic, agent, publisher, editor. He coined the term, I think probably back in the 1950s. Um, and it caught on with some people and other people hated it. In computer programming, we have what's called Huffman coding. Yes. And that is the the things that you tend to use the most often be have the, the shortest path to usage. So common keywords and common operators have the fewest number of characters. Right. And... Uh, I, I see this pattern happening again and again. I, you see it in science fiction versus sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my other hobbies, other other hobbies, is I play disc golf. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the disc golf field, 
you refer to it as disc golf, but discs look like frisbees. And so a lot of people call it frisbee golf or frolf for short. <laughs> and it's almost like a, a shibboleth, an identifier from people who are in the community and out of the community. Yes. That's exactly how science fiction and sci-fi used to be. It used to be exactly that shibboleth. But I don't think it is anymore. But the the other thing that people do for respectability is, and for convenience, is they just call it SF. Because, you know, that you can't get any shorter than that. Just two characters, <laughs> yeah. SF. And I think last time you, you mentioned speculative fiction as an alternative um, label for the genre or for the field. And um, it reminded me that other people have come up with terminology that preserves the S and the F. And the one that I've, I've always found the most strange is structural fabulation, which is, is never going to catch on. Nobody's ever going to call it structural fabulation. I read some wonderful structural fabulation today. But, uh, <laughs> that, was, that came from a critic who obviously wanted to preserve the S and the F, but find some other term for it. Well, and if, if the term became popular and entered, you know, the common lingo, eventually it would be SFAB or something else. Oh, yes. Or SPECFAB. Yes. Yeah. STRUCKFAB or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know in today's show, we're probably going to get onto time travel. I can just feel it in my bones. Um, and that reminds me that mm. another thing we didn't talk about last time when we were talking about definitions of science fiction is that another way of defining the genre is to say, well, it's anything that uses the common coin concepts from the genre. So anything that uses uh, space travel, time travel, uh, those kind of tropes and, and familiar devices, we are likely to say, oh, that's a piece of science fiction, regardless of what the narrative is. Um, and, and that made me realise when I was thinking about it that time travel is a bit of an oddity for science fiction, because time travel is pure fantasy, isn't it? We, we can't really travel through time. Well, we can travel forward one second per second, but... So why is time travel acceptable as science fiction when it is so clearly not scientific? I, I think that historically, you know, thinking how we've done this always, anything that involved science or machinery yeah. became science fiction. So if you step through a, a giant tunnel to go into the past or the future, and that that tunnel is connected to a bunch of machinery with lights and switches and dials and, uh, you know, traveling arcs, that's science fiction. If you, you build a fire and make a sacrifice and, and invoke ancient languages and, and chant and stuff and travel through time, mm -hmm. well, that would then be yeah, fantasy. Good point. You, you're right. And, and it is often a tunnel or a door or a portal through time isn't it it's um yeah actually we have time machines as well don't we we have the thing where you sit on a machine and you pull a lever and you travel forwards or backwards mm -hmm. but a lot of the time it's going through a special door or as you say through a tunnel um in star trek you had the uh, guardian of forever which is like a giant donut that people leap through and then they find themselves in the past but you're right it's it's what it's connected to so if yes. it's connected to technology science fiction but otherwise it's just magic yeah even if it's not plausible right yes and ultimately it's all not plausible because time travel is not real <laughs> <laughs> yeah at least not as we understand it I and mean, there are ways to yep. to bend it as, as you get closer to light speed then your the 
Oh, it's been too long since <laughs> physics class. The faster you go, the uh, slower your clock goes. Moving clocks go slow. Is that it? Or is it the other way around? That is correct. So if you get closer to light speed, then the clock stops from the outside yes. perspective. But not from yeah, the inside perspective. That's right. So your own clock always runs at normal speed. Yes. I'm amazed how, how seriously we, t- we take all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I spent some time thinking about the definition of the uh, conservation of energy in a closed system, explaining why time travel can't happen. Oh, yes. Tell me more. <laughs> oh, well, it's just uh, it's one of the, the fundamentals of, of small scale physics experiments. One of the things that you say at first is, is that uh, I have a closed system and so no energy enters or leaves it. And that's that's the definition of the universe. The universe is a we believe the universe to be a closed system. Yeah. And so if something were to travel in time, then a bunch of matter would exist at one point and not at another point. So that would violate the conservation of energy principle. Well, that's a good one. I never thought of that. I used to be a physicist as well, but I, oh. <laughs> I never never went near that. That's very good. Well, I could be completely misconstruing it, so yeah, and I'm sure people will write in with corrections if we're wrong on any of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to time travel again later. Um, before we move on, though, I'd just like to report back on the, the kind of response we got to our first episode. I can't see exactly who, as an individual, is listening to the podcast, but I can view the statistics. Um, and I can report that we have more listeners from the US than from any other country, which frankly doesn't surprise me. I think that's often the case with uh, podcasts of this nature. But the countries where we have listeners are as follows. US, UK, Australia, Germany, South Africa, Canada, Luxembourg, India, Romania, Sweden, Czech Republic, Mexico, Spain, Belgium, Portugal, Ireland, and Vietnam. Wow. I'm I'm guessing that at the tail end there, the, the last few countries are probably just individual listeners but uh hello vietnam oh i should say good morning vietnam <laughs> and we got some response to the first episode as well we got listed on files770.com uh, which is mike glyer's website so thanks to mike or his minions for mentioning us on there um we heard from seth who seconded colin your recommendation of the day of the triffids i'm always pleased to see Americans appreciating John Wyndham because he, you know, he's to us, he's ever so British. <laughs> he has, he writes great prose. I really liked not only what he wrote about, but the way that he wrote it. Yes. Yeah. And of course, he wrote, although he's British, he wrote an awful lot for the American pulp mag- magazines long before really any other British authors were doing it. Um, he, he sort of had two careers, really. One was as a magazine writer, and then a bit later on, um, as a novelist and and by the time he was a novelist he was really a a very good stylist i think Mm -hmm. very good writer and in the last episode i recommended james gunn's the road to science fiction the anthology series but a listener michael contacted us to point out that the scarecrow press versions of those books they're they're reissues from the early 2000s the scarecrow press ones don't have the appendix that i referred to which is this sort of reading list that james gunn provided so as a public service i dug out my copy of the original paperback from mentor 1977 
and I photographed the appendix pages and I stuck them on Facebook. So if anyone's interested, um, <laughs> have a look on Facebook and you'll find them on there. Um, and Michael also mentioned some classics that he recommends. He mentioned uh, Gateway by Frederick Pohl, which mm-hmm. I think is a good choice. And also Tripods, which or, or the Tripod Trilogy, which is a series of books by John Christopher, again, a, a British writer, um, who I, I I don't know if he's very well known around the world, but um, he's, he's certainly quite well known in the UK. Do you know the Tripods? I believe those works were adapted, so I'm going to say yes. Yes, they were, yes. A BBC TV series at some point, yeah. Yeah. So last time we talked, I had mentioned that I'm on another podcast and, and Seth, my, my, one of my podcast co-hosts said, you should have told people what the podcast was. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my other podcast that I'm on regularly is called Take Me to Your Reader. And we discuss adapted science fiction. We've been doing this for eight years. We just released episode 100. And we review adapted science fiction going back as far as the original source work from the 1800s to things that were just released as short stories a few years ago and adapted uh, into Netflix specials back in December. And it is a very good podcast. That's how I first um, met Colin was through that podcast. And uh, I've been on it a few times, but that's not why I say it's good. I, I just think it's a it's a really <laughs> nifty concept and it's... I'm. I'm envious of the title of that podcast because I think it's genius. Take me to your reader. Very clever. <laughs> we had tried to get that URL as the URL for the podcast, but someone else is squatting on it. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I, it's uh, pavementpodcast.com for anyone that's interested. And you can find us on all the other podcast places. Before we started this one, I did Google around just to see if anyone else was using Science Fiction 101. And uh, fortunately, nobody was really. Now, to encourage people to get in touch with us, I thought we should have a sort of a competition. We we don't have any prizes, though, so uh, it's only ever going to be just for fun. But I thought, what better thing to have on a science fiction podcast than some science fiction sounds? So we're going to have our mystery sound of the week. And who knows, this may become a regular feature. So... Have a listen to this, and Colin, you have a listen, but if you recognise it, don't say what it is, because obviously it's for the listeners to guess. Have a listen to this, and uh, see what you think this sound is. That's a very science-fictional sound, if you ask me. Oh, yes. (laughs) Do you recognize it? I do not. I'm I'm scrambling trying to place it, and I'm not <laughs> getting anything. Well, if you, dear listener, would like to have a guess at the mystery sound, uh, or get in touch with us about anything else in the podcast, you can leave a comment on our blog, which is 101sf.blogspot.com, or you can find us on Facebook now as well. So one of our regular features is to talk about old science fiction classics that perhaps need a wider audience. Colin, what are your recommendations this time for past science fiction? Since the topic of the the day is time travel, uh, I want to, I'd like to expand perhaps our idea of classic to maybe include 1988, if that's okay. I think that counts as classic. Definitely. I think anything older than about five years is probably classic. Oh, okay. Don't you think? I think anything that's stood the test of time um, probably counts as a classic, and five, ten years is probably enough. 
Yeah. I think we go back to the, the, the problem of definitions. When I, when I think of classic sci-fi, I think Asimov and Clark and, really? uh, you know, the, 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 the golden age. And then there are these other ages that followed it. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? The golden age, so-called. Um, but somebody said the golden age of science fiction is 12. So, you know, it's whenever you personally were young and somebody was 12 in 1988, I'm sure. So. Oh, yeah. Not <laughs> me, but I'm sure other people were. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dean Koontz, the noted horror writer, has a, a science fiction book called Lightning that I absolutely love. Uh, it has... It has time travel in it, and it, it's a great story uh, with with character arcs and world changing consequences, and uh, it's just I really enjoy it. I've not come across that. I'm, I'm familiar with Dean Koontz, um, and in fact, I th I think I could be wrong, but I think I first read him when he was just a sort of science fiction writer before he became this sort of huge best selling horror writer. Um, but I haven't read any of his major works i was surprised at how recent you know relatively speaking re recent in his career that book was which brings up a, a question i have for you mm -hmm. uh on, a, on my other podcast we have a, a full spoilers policy we we right. don't withhold information we just talk about it we warn people about it up front uh how how do we do things on science fiction 101 oh my you're asking for a policy <laughs> we we don't have a policy, but we can make one up right now. No, I think generally speaking, if if we're recommending something to somebody, I don't think we should give a spoiler because we're presuming that they haven't read it and uh, therefore we don't want to spoil it for them. But I think if we're just sort of reviewing things more casually and um, recalling uh, I don't know, all all the science fiction, sorry, all of the time travel stories we've read and the ones that have made impressions upon us. I think the odd spoiler in that kind of discussion is almost inevitable. But uh, I think if we're making a recommendation, let's let's try not to spoil things. Although okay, I, gave, I gave away the ending of James Gunn's Road to Science Fiction by saying that it had an appendix. Does that count as a spoiler? <laughs> well, it, it's more of an academic work, and so I don't think so. There's no, no plot reveals or anything. <laughs> My recommendation is uh, a book that I've been rereading. I'm sure I read it when, either when it first came out or within a couple of years of its first publication. But uh, I, I was very keen to reread, and so I started rereading Octavia Butler's Kindred, which is from 1979, and... It, it holds up remarkably well. I, I was afraid that it might feel like a work of its era, you know, late 70s. But it still feels remarkably um, fresh and meaningful today. It, it is a, a time travel story of a sort, um, but it, it sort of fits into that tradition of non-scientific or non-mechanical time travel, which I, hmm. I think connects it. It, it sounds odd to say this, really, but it connects it to things like Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and uh, Jack Finney's time travel stories and Richard Matheson's Bid Time Return, which is stories where people kind of just think themselves into the past and then there they, there they are, or they they fall asleep and they wake up in the past. So it's a kind of involuntary time travel or uncontrolled or even unexplained time travel. Um, and, and what happens in Kindred is that this, this young woman just finds herself 
being dragged back into the past, and she arrives in Maryland in um, pre-Civil War times, so it's slavery days, and she's a, she's a black woman, and she lands in this place surrounded by slaves and slave masters, and she's got no control over going back in time. It just happens. She seems to be drawn to this focal point, who is another character um, in the past, and she she gets drawn back, and each time she's drawn back to a different point in that character's life. So it it's a really very engaging story, and quite frightening as well, because of the, the, the things that she witnesses and that happen to her. Um, but a, a very powerful book. And of course Octavia Butler um, has really grown in reputation over the years. Um, and it, it's never nice to say this, but she's one of those authors who I think has done better since she died than uh, when she was alive. I mean, she did have some very successful works during her life, but um, it's not her career, but her reputation has soared in the years since she passed away, a a bit in the way that Philip K. Dick did as well. You know, he was successful when he was alive, but he was enormously successful after he passed away. You know, in, in art, that would be a not uncommon thing to happen. Yes. Uh, where we only seem to appreciate people looking back at their works rather than and enjoying them as they're produced. Yes, yes. Which, which is kind of sad in a way. Uh, one of my favorite fantasy authors, Tad Williams, I, uh, I caught him on one of his first books. And I've been reading his books as he produces them. And I, I've seen, you know, the, the ebb and the, the, the swell of things that come and go and... Uh, at some point we're going to cover one of his topics and I'm going to recommend his, his series of books that are, are pure science fiction. Excellent. Yeah. No, I, that's not somebody that I've read anything of and I don't really know much about that particular author. So that'll be interesting to hear about. Oh, cool. Speaking of this sort of involuntary time travel, um, I, I was a bit curious as to whether Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee had preceded H.G. Wells's uh, time machine. And when I looked it up, I was quite astonished to see how close together they were in time. Connecticut Yankee came out in 1889, and the time machine came out in 1895, just six years later. But the first version of the time machine was a shorter work called The Chronic Argonaut, which was in 1888, so just one year before the Connecticut Yankee just finds himself flung back in time. I think he gets hit on the head, doesn't he? And uh, wakes up in medieval times. Yes. On our other podcast, every Christmas we do a special episode and we stretch the rules a little bit to say (laughs) whether something is science fiction or not. Uh, We declared Charles Dickens A Christmas Carol to be science fiction (laughs) uh, because he's given visions of the future or actually perhaps travels into the future. Yes. But that's 1843. And I guess other people had been doing that in sort of dreams and uh, falling asleep and waking up in a, in a future world for for quite some time. But there, there seems to have been something in the air in the late 1880s. Um, sort of industrial revolution, maybe, was making people think of uh, changing times a little bit more. You know, I, I did some thinking about why time travel became a popular topic in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that that time, the late 1800s, 
isn't that about the time when we actually had explored the entire planet and ran out of places to go? It probably was, wasn't it? Yes. Are you yeah. thinking that before that we'd sort of had these stories of lost worlds? You know, yeah, lost um, continents. Yeah. Places, yeah. you know, that hadn't been explored yet where people could go and, you know, claim their land and challenge the elements and see what hadn't been seen. Yes. And so I thought, well, maybe this is how time travel came about because there's no place left to go. And so the only thing left are when to go. But then we have planets. Yeah. And what, but maybe that's the, the two things that science fiction does best. One is to find <laughs> another place for us to go by taking us back in time. Another is to take us off the planet somewhere else. People have pointed out that the the, the sort of emergence of science fiction and particularly space fiction, travelling into space by rocket, uh, sort of coincides uh, with the, the the loss of frontier in the United States. In other words, the, the whole of the continent had been populated um, really by the end of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, so where's the frontier? Well, the frontier now is up. And so you get... Um, in not only in science fiction but in real life you get space the final frontier and you get uh, uh, Kennedy's new frontier I I have a, a, a sort of a theory about time travel which I, I think is either incredibly profound or incredibly obvious and I'm not sure which it's probably a mixture of both but um, it seems to me that one of the appeals of a time travel story is that when you're reading it you're kind of oscillating between the fictional world that you're taken to, so the like you're you're taken back to medieval times, let's say, and you're sort of enjoying that that world being represented, but at the same time, because you know it's a time travel story, you're you're bringing your own consciousness of your own present into the story along with the time traveling character, so you're kind of oscillating between the past as you might enjoy it in a historical novel. But also, you you're conscious that uh, the past is different from the present. Do you see what I mean? There's a kind of an, a a, a double mindedness that's going on. It's a juxtaposition. There's the things that I know should be, and there are the things that I can observe being quite different from that. So, for uh, Octavia Butler's story Kindred, for a, a black woman to come from a, a point of slavery being a thing of the past into being experiencing it directly, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. was probably quite you know traumatic and stark. I suppose it also works if you've got something that's set in the future and you're kind of the the future in a uh, that kind of science fiction is usually extrapolated in some way from our present and often it's done in a kind of satirical way. So again we're oscillating between our understanding of our own world and the kind of satiric uh, commentary on it that the science fiction author is providing to us. Yeah. That, That's my theory anyway. (laughs) Let's shift to the present. What new science fiction have you been reading lately or watching or listening to? A fair amount of my science fiction reading and watching is tied up with my other podcast. And I I mentioned that uh, I was reading uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Body Snatchers Mm -hmm. uh, because those are different works. And then we've just started watching movies for a recording. So right. we've watched the original one from 1956. Yeah. And I will be watching in the next couple of weeks all the other adaptations because it has been adapted several times. Have you seen them before? So are these rewatches or are these first watches? These are 
except for the 1970 adaptation. These are all first watches for me. That's that's good because you'll come at them with fresh, um, dare I say, naive eyes rather than um, an expectation of, oh, I remember what's coming next kind of thing. I, I look at all these movies through the eyes of adaptation rather than experiencing them on their own because uh-huh. I'm looking to see how correct they are. I, I apply that filter to all of them, unfortunately. So, so you like your your adaptations to run close to the the work that's being adapted. I do, and so a lot of times I get surprised when changes are made, and it actually improves on the source material. I, I sort of move in academic circles and among people who study adaptation. I mean, I don't get very deeply into adaptation myself, but uh, except as a as a viewer, as a casual viewer. Um, but there are some people who study adaptation in great depth, and in those circles, it's almost taboo to talk about a faithful adaptation. If you if you watch something and you think that it is faithful to the original, you don't dare say so, because it's considered taboo to say that. It's it's considered irrelevant. <laughs> it's it's not important. But I think. To most viewers, if you go into a film or a TV show having read the book beforehand, you do go in there expecting some similarity to the book. It's inevitable, and it's part of the pleasure of viewing, is either having that fulfilled by recognising things that you've read, or by, as you say, being surprised by some new twist being applied to the story. But you you definitely go in there with a the kind of the preconceptions that you bring from having read the book and as part of the pleasures of it i think an author writes a story and a person Mm. reads a story and then someone else options the story and i would expect to see how they envision what they read versus what i read and when it's completely different or substantially different then it makes me wonder if we've really read the same book yes but that's an interesting statement about academics considering it almost taboo to have something being (laughs) faithful to the original work. It's not that it's taboo for something to be faithful. It is taboo to talk about that because it's not considered to be um, kind of cutting edge to make that kind of observation. It's considered more um, respectable to make some original observation about how one work reflects another or interacts with another or interprets it. But to just say, oh, that was a faithful adaptation is considered kind of lazy scholarship. <laughs> it's probably the difference between a uh, deconstructed hamburger and uh, the hamburger you'd get down at your favorite pub. I, actually, I think there's a paper in that. I should write that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, my present recommendation or my recommendation of science fiction from the present is a Danish Netflix series called The Rain, which actually I I have mixed feelings about. I I very much enjoyed the first season of it, and the second season I found very disappointing. But I'm now watching the third, and I believe the final season of it, and at the moment it's holding my attention. It's um, a post-apocalyptic story, and it's one of those uh, the world has been overtaken by a a big plague which comes in the rain so it's um, probably something that's been released by scientists either intentionally or accidentally and there is this rain that if you get hit by the rain you die basically and the story follows um, 
a pair of young characters, sort of a teenage girl and her younger brother, who's probably about six or seven years younger than her, who've been put into a special bunker by their father and then left there. And they stay there for six years and eventually they emerge from the bunker and take on the world, um, a world which has basically been destroyed by this plague. And it's about them trying to find a solution, uh, trying to find a cure, um, trying to solve the world's problems. So it's it's one of those sort of classic post-apocalyptic, what are we going to do next kind of thing. And I quite enjoy it. Um, but it, it gets a bit annoying in season two. I hope that's not a spoiler to anyone. So it's called The Rain. <laughs> I'd started to watch that a couple of years ago when it first came on Netflix. And I, I couldn't get past, I think, the two-thirds point of season one. As often happens with these kind of things, they have to then find a, a twist or a, or a new spin to send the series in to make you want to watch the second season. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about what those twists are, but that's the thing that didn't work for me, was sort of changing the direction of the show for season two. I felt the first season worked better. But it it has a problem that a lot of uh, recent television science fiction has had in sort of focusing on young people and not going terribly deep with characterization. So you get an awful lot of people running around, um, being in groups, and the groups being forcibly split apart and then having to search for each other and just sort of generally wasting time rather than telling more meaningful stories do you know what i mean it's it, that's something that for me plagued the the 100 i don't know if you saw that i haven't um, seen that and there was a a series back in about 2012 called revolution which was uh from jj abrams company after lost um, they did Revolution, which was basically all the electricity's gone off, and uh, what are we going to do now? And and that had a good central premise, but it just got very tedious after after a few episodes. One of the things that I've really enjoyed with uh, so much media being online is the ability to see science fiction series from other countries, and I am particularly in love with. Uh, British television because they're not afraid to tell a short set of stories and then say we're done you don't have to drag out a season into 22 episodes you don't have to do it season on season you can do something you can do it very well and then you can be done and if you want to pick it up again later that's certainly an option but there's there's not so much filler that that is much more of a tradition in British TV, and not just in science fiction, but also in things like sitcoms. You know, classically, Faulty Towers ran for, (laughs) what, about 12 episodes in total? Um, And although I'm sure a lot of people would have liked more, it probably is such a strong piece because there are only 12. And if they'd attempted to make like 26 per year for five years, it would have been very, very average, probably. But uh, yeah, it's it's a British thing. I think it's because we don't have much money for producing TV shows, so we tend oh. to go for short runs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, Disney seems to be adopting that model with um, the new Clone Wars cartoons that are coming out, and WandaVision was nine episodes. Yes, yes. Uh, the Mandalorian again, short seasons with long gaps in between it to build anticipation because they keep doing it very well. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, the new, the other new Marvel Cinematic Universe series coming out, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, 
six episodes and it's done. It's sort of a, a Netflix kind of a thing to do as well, isn't it? Or a Hulu kind of thing is to, to keep things short, but but also to try and sustain them uh, quite often. So, you know, there, se- there seems to be more willingness from people like Netflix to commit to longer runs of things, uh, shorter seasons, but, m- you know, projecting more than one season ahead sometime. Yeah, for a subscription model, that's how you get people to continue to subscribe. I guess it is, yes. Okay, let's travel more in time. Let's go to the future. What science fiction are you looking forward to seeing or reading or hearing in the next year or so? This next one is is a bit of a a wish, I suppose. Elizabeth Baer, science fiction writer, has a short story called Dolly, which you can find online. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really, really interesting. It has been optioned for tele- for adaptation into a movie, and I'm really excited to see how people will take a very short short story and blow it out to a you know a feature length ninety minute to one hundred and twenty minute movie. It's about uh, androids and self awareness and okay. responsibility. That's another one I've I've not looked at, so I, I I too look forward to seeing that. So thanks for that recommendation. One of my um, things to look forward to as well uh, is a a TV piece, a a pilot that's been ordered. And this is pure coincidence, genuinely, um, for (laughs) Octavia Butler's Kindred, which, you know, I started rereading. And then just last week or the week before, I learned that it's been optioned and there is a pilot. um, Well, it's being written at the moment. But I think they've announced some casting details as well. So it sounds as if it is going to go ahead, at least as a pilot. And that could be interesting. But uh, there is some other film or something called Kindred, which is nothing to do with that. So I've, I have a feeling they may have to change the title at some point, which would be a, a bit annoying if they had to. But, Isn't that uh, a 1990s movie with Liam Neeson? Could be. Yes, it sounds like that. But it, there's a more recent one as well. Okay. Um, I think it's it's one of those titles that's that's it's just a nice word, you know. <laughs> it's going to be used again and again. Uh, another thing that I'm looking forward to, and I have my fingers crossed about this, is the last Dangerous Visions. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Colin, but um, that was the 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 kind of great lost anthology that plagued Harlan Ellison. Um, in the final decades of his life. He, in the 1960s, he put together this anthology called Dangerous Visions, mm-hmm. which was considered very successful at the time. And he did a, a follow-up called Again Dangerous Visions in the 70s, and then announced another one called The Last Dangerous Visions. And he spent a couple of decades buying fresh stories to put into this book. But the book never came out. And um, there's all sorts of theories and rumours and horror stories about what happened behind the scenes. And I don't think anyone truly knows the the real story of what went on. But um, Harlan died a few, a few years ago, and the Ellison estate is being sorted out with um, Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5 fame. Um, he's, he's the kind of literary executor of the Ellison estate. And one of the things that he's pledged to do is to publish a version of The Last Dangerous Visions. 
it won't be the original book that Harlan would have produced had Harlan produced it, partly because um, Harlan didn't write all of the introductory material that he normally did for these uh, for this series. Also, some of the stories have been retracted over the years, so Harlan bought stories from various authors and some of them bought them back. Um, many of them have been published elsewhere by now. But I gather that what Straczynski plans to do is to publish the the kind of the remaining core of stories, plus commission some new stories, and then finally publish it. So that's ongoing at the moment, and I think some of us will breathe a huge sigh of relief if one day we can pick up a book that actually is called The Last Dangerous Visions. Interesting. I, I wonder if part of that will be uh, Michael Straczynski telling us as much of the history as can be recovered to learn, you know, what was the delay and what, what happened with that over the decades. I, I certainly hope so. There must be a story to tell there. And some people have told the the kind of the negative version of the story over the years. So some people who were involved or submitted work for the original um, planned version of the book, some of them turned hostile um, over time. Many of them did not, however, um, but the only people we really heard from are the ones who were sort of negative about the whole experience. And I do think that there must be a story behind this that we literally don't know. And I, I always like to get to the bottom of things, so I'm hoping that this will um, set the record straight, really, and and make everything right with the world. Well, and to bring a conclusion to something that people have been wanting for decades is a nice thing. Yes, that's right. So we've covered the past, we've covered the present, we've covered the future, we've talked about time travel, both voluntary and involuntary. Uh, we've talked about going back in time by accident and jumping in a machine. Um, <laughs> and we've more or less run out of time. Just a reminder that we have that mystery sound, which I'll play again here. So if you want to have a guess as to what that mystery sound is, you're not going to win anything, just a little bit of kudos. Uh, if you want to have a guess, go to our website, which is 101sf.blogspot.com, and post a comment there. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we're simply listed as Science Fiction 101. And my voice is giving out, so we must finish. We must finish. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, thank you for coming up with your suggestions today. Oh, you're welcome. And that's it for now, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to Science Fiction 101, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky, and our theme tune is from purpleplanet.com. Look for the show notes on our website, 101sf.blogspot.com, and also find us as Science Fiction 101 on Facebook. And finally, please subscribe wherever you find us. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. 